Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and uh, we're going to talk about the Kingdom of God. We're going to actually talk a little bit about intentional communities. There was a self-reliance summit that was on uh, the Internet, part of a promotion for a uh, festival, a Unifest, that people are having. And you you could hear a lot of different people talking about uh, self-reliance, independent living, everything from beekeeping to... Uh, to uh, you know, uh, permaculture to health and, you know, diet and all sorts of things that are becoming an important topic for a certain group of people throughout uh, the world, not just the United States and uh, the, uh, but even the third world countries uh, are concerned about this. That's why some of the third world countries have outlawed GMOs and uh, Europe has outlawed GMOs for the most part. And, uh, the reason why is they're concerned about the food that we're consuming, that uh, that it may not be as healthy for us as uh, advertisers would like to to think. And uh, medicine, there's serious problems with medicine. We just heard the, this 30-year-old local uh, medical practitioner suddenly he's come down with liver cancer. Uh, as a matter of fact, amongst young people, besides um, uh, some of the one of the major second major cause of death is like cancer. Why so much cancer? There's really a pandemic of cancer throughout society. People say, "Oh well, we didn't used to live so long, so a lot more people die of cancer." No, they're dying of cancer as children. They're dying of cancers as young, healthy people. And this particular doctor happens to be a real health nut. Yet he's got liver cancer, which has very poor prognosis. Like. You know, in five years, 17% of the people diagnosed with liver cancer are still alive. Uh, that's pretty dismal um, statistic. Why is this all taking place? Well, there's a number of factors. It's just kind of, uh, you know, I was actually in a store just the other day and I saw they were giving uh, shingles vaccines. A big sign up in this discount store that you could also, besides getting discount foods and uh, discount uh sporting goods, you could also get a shingles vaccine. And there's a great controversy about vaccines. Are vaccines even good for you? Do they even work? I mean, I can show you vaccinations for livestock where they say right on them that they only work in a small percentage of cases. But yet, you know, because people don't read the fine print, uh, they keep going, oh, you have to have that. And everybody goes and gets it. And, you know, for their livestock and for their children, which has become pretty much livestock these days. Uh, because we're all, we've all become human resources. So, in the course of listening to some of these, I haven't listened to them all. They actually sent me a deal where I could listen to some of them that I missed before. And I kind of listened to them by, you know, jumping through the context. Because I've heard this, much of this stuff before. It's always good to have a little bit of a refresher course. We came out to the desert, you know, more than 30 years ago to raise our children. And, you know, we've we've done it all. We've raised goats and tanned hides and done the permaculture and the companion planting and raised beds and 
and done it in high altitude desert farming and understand that. Uh, one of the guys, uh, I think his name was Colson, uh, was talking about, uh, you know, the Essenes and, and the early Native Americans and living in accordance with nature. And I'm not a steward of the land, but I am in harmony with nature kind of approach. And these, this is the vocabulary that he's developed as he's gone on his journey, his quest for self-reliance or, you know, self-help, self you know, sustainable living. And so he has developed a certain vocabulary. I, you know, uh, I've, I've studied the American Indian, the history of the American Indian, the Indian itself, as well as the history of uh, the Celts and the uh, Anglo-Saxons and the Romans and the Greeks and all these different cultures. And in reality, the average European uh, at the time of the rise of the Roman Empire, which was didn't take place until about 500 years after Rome, the Republic, was created. The Empire came after that as a part of an evolution of society or a devolution of society because of the fact that society actually devolved as they moved into the imperial Rome. Uh, they had a lot more pomp and ceremony and they had some fantastic buildings, but they were living on laurels of the generations before uh, for quite a while as Rome declined and fell. Right as Rome was declining and falling, along comes a a teacher, philosopher, uh, man by the name of Jesus, uh, which historically there's huge amounts of evidence besides the Bible that Jesus existed and that he preached something because... Uh, it, it wasn't the product of, uh, you know, the Pizzo family or any of these other uh, conspiracy theories that wander around on the Internet. Because where did all the Christian followers come from who actually knew Jesus, who were speaking at that time and are reported trials of Christians were being reported from uh, the early days. And if this was just made up, and there wasn't actually anybody who knew him, that would take a little while for that literature to get disseminated. Because, I mean, they don't have mass printing presses, printing all these. I mean, the first 50 Bibles weren't printed until about 300 A.D., and they were handwritten out and uh, compiled by a guy named Eusebius. And But there had been Christians around uh, right away. I mean, Nero was accusing the Christians of setting fire to Rome. And we know Rome was, somebody set fire to Rome because we have reports from people like Tacitus that people were seen setting the fires. And uh, the, the reports coming in at that time. And the consensus was growing that this was actually Nero himself, who was instigating these fires because he wanted this huge building project. He needed to burn out the slums in order to have a place to build. And uh, because they were in this location of the city of Seven Hills. One of the problems with studying history is that people study bits and pieces of it and they don't get an overall picture. A few people in my family, they have this mind where they got to see the whole picture. The pieces of the puzzle have to fit together. They have to solve what really went on here. And uh, that 
that's a characteristic you'll find in some people, but not in others. Others don't, that's not as important. They, they may have other abilities, other ways of thinking. And that's important in society that you have people with a variety of ways of seeing things and dealing with issues of life because we aren't just all stamped out with the same cookie cutter. There's a variety of people. I mean, the, the difference between men and women. And the many different kinds of women, many different kinds of men, and the way they think. All these things add to society and create this whole entity. Just like you, as an individual, were born out of one single cell that was actually, came together and united and became this one single cell. Because two separate entities came together and permeated each other, and shared DNA. These two separate entities, one man, one woman, came together and DNA from both of them was congealed together to create a single cell. And that cell divided and became another cell and another cell and another cell. But as that was dividing, and all those cells began to divide, and you didn't just have a cancerous growth. You had mysteriously, suddenly, there were skin cells, there were liver cells, kidney cells, bone cells, you know, and it created from this single cell all the data, all the information to create an entire living individual with fingers and toes and, and legs and arms and and livers and kidneys and hearts all came together with thousands of veins and some cells became blood cells, some became white blood cells, some became, became red blood cells. We have a tendency to think all red blood cells are the same. They are not. Red blood cells will divide up tasks, and some will do some tasks better than others. Some carry more food, some carry more oxygen. All this is going on in your body, and you don't even have to think about it. But it's going on in your body. Now, I will tell you that what you think affects what's going on in your body. Your emotions. You know, how many people have said, you know, laughter is the best medicine. And, you know, your attitude is, you know, 90% of being healthy. And uh, and the reality is that a lot of that is true. I don't know if the statistics are correct. But the reality is there are many factors for a healthy body. Well, there are many factors in a healthy society, in a healthy world. And there it requires a lot of different people who think a lot of different ways, working together as one body. And, of course, in the church we talk about the body of Christ, the corpus of Christ. Where two or more people gather together as this one body for a particular purpose, which is the purposes of Christ, as if they were one body. That's a corporation. It's a spiritual corporation in the, in the overall general church because there is no corporate charter that binds all the people together. There is a spiritual nature, spiritual pattern, which is, we see in Christ, that binds all the people together. And we're bound together in Christ. And... And Paul talks about, you know, preaching Christ crucified. Well, when he says that, he means more than just somebody got nailed to a cross. He means 
this voluntary sacrificing of self to set the people free, because that's what Christ was doing. He was setting the people free from the totalitarianism of Rome. Now, Rome wasn't always a totalitarian, dictatorial, imperial cult, but it became that over a period of time because it changed, it alters, altered certain characteristics of its culture. Now, when you do that, you have to alter characteristics in actual people and you have to do it in a number of ways. And to study history and see how these things flow together, how they, you know, you change this parameter in society, and all of society changes. It's like changing the course of a ship. The whole ship starts going another place. There might be people on board that ship that don't want to go where the ship is going. <laughs> so... They try to create a life that is self-reliant, that is separate from where the rest of society is going. They literally need to create another society. A society in society, but not of society. A society that can bail out of society and still still sustain itself. When we talk about self-reliance, that's an individual thing. But society, it can society be self-reliant? And can you bring a society together and bind it together without removing its freedoms and its liberties? And of course, that was that is the message of the Bible, not just the gospel. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness is talking about the government of God, the way God wants you to be governed. He wants that way to be a righteous way. And of course, that's what you know, that's why God sent Moses to lead the people out of the bondage of Egypt. He didn't just send them out so that they, they didn't get whipped by the Pharaoh anymore. He sent them out so that they may become a peculiar people, his people, his people who live by this thing that Paul calls the perfect law of liberty, by faith, hope, and charity. So, when we talk about these things, we're going to try to always keep that in mind. What what would this have in, uh, to do with creating that free society, that kingdom of God, that, that all the Christians were seeking daily by a righteous culture? They were developing a culture, a, a Christian culture, and to live according to that Christian culture because that would help them not only be free of Rome but to survive the decline and fall of Rome. So that when Rome completely fell apart and the social services uh, fell into decay and people were starving in the streets, Christians were getting by pretty good. They were doing actually extremely well, even thriving. And people saw this, and of course many people were jealous and envious and they wanted to persecute the Christians because how come they can get by and we can't get by and we're the Roman Empire? And... They persecuted them, and and eventually you get somebody like Constantine who says, "Man, things are really bad. We got to figure out something." Thousands of people starve in a city; cities empty out because of plagues and famines. But the Christians always seem to come out on top. It's like sometimes they know what's going to happen, and or they just they don't need the free bread. When the free bread didn't show up, there were riots in Rome. But it wasn't Christians who were writing because they didn't depend upon the free bread, the welfare system of Rome. 
They had their own system. And we know this because of the arguments in court that have been recorded at that time. You know, in 150 A.D., 200 A.D., Christians were brought into court and people recorded, separate from the Bible, recorded the trials. And these are people sometimes recording these events with, you know, holding the Christians not in a favorable light to them and their society. But once you understand what the Christians were really doing, actually they were in a favorable light from the point of view of Christ. Because there was a conflict between Rome and what the Christians were doing. The Christian culture and the Roman culture. Now, the interesting thing is, is if you go far enough back in the history of Rome, the Roman culture was very close to that of the Christian culture. It had a lot of similarities. Many, many more than you might imagine. But they fell into decay because they changed some of the parameters of their society. Some of the, what you would call in the Bible, elements of the world. And when they changed those, the world changed. Now, a lot of people want to change the world now. And they want to do it by electing a different Caesar, a different ruler, a different president or prime minister. I guess the prime minister in England just resigned because England just voted to get out of the European Union. I happen to have somebody who's staying here uh, who's from England uh, just came over for a visit. And they, I asked them, well, what do you think about the idea of England uh, separating from the European Union. And they didn't think it would be a good idea because they don't know what would happen. And it's kind of the, you know, the devil you know rather than the devil you don't know. And the fact is, as I pointed out, it says, well, actually, even if you stay in the European Union, you don't know what's going to happen. And they said, well, yeah, that's true too. <laughs> so, And I pointed out that England was designed to be independent of Europe. That's why it's an island, a nation. It's off the coast. It's separate. So, anyway, so whatever's going to happen over there, I mean, there's stock market problems and it started coming back. And But there's going to be long-range problems. But there were going to be problems staying in. There were going to be problems getting out. And they're going to face these. The reality is, what do you do? Or you sit back and I know other people from England, they, they, they're amazed how the English will sit back and wait for the government to fix a problem. And of course, that same spirit has moved over to America. It's not my job, they, people say. It's, that's the government. Call the police. Call 911. You know, it's not my job. But it is. Society is the job of all members of society. Now, how you impose the obligations of society is one of those elements of the world. If you impose it by force, uh, well, you're going to get a society that operates by force, allegiance, you know, and entitlements. And that's not going to work. That's, uh, that usually ends up being either a socialist and then moves towards a fascist or a fascist communist state where millions upon millions of citizens are exterminated because they get in the way of the status quo. And the status quo is, I'm in power and you're not. Because <laughs> all socialism requires somebody be empowered to decide to take away from this group and give to another group. So, 
Anyway, these are all factors in finding this free society, this, uh, what you might call a permaculture of humanity. And we're going to take a look at some of these elements and see how they fit together and how they don't fit together, how they work with Christ and how they work against what Christ was teaching. And we'll do that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're talking about uh, the keys of the kingdom. What made the kingdom of God, what it looks like, how it operates, and what steers you towards that thing that you're supposed to be seeking, and what steers you away. And uh, another topic, well, I'll I'll deal with that later, the uh, I heard a number of things on the internet uh, talking about egalitarian nature of society and and uh, what are the three elements of a successful American society. American society is an extremely successful society. But then so was Rome. Rome was an extremely successful society. But it moved from being a republic to being a centralized, dictatorial, imperial cult. And what made it an imperial cult? Well, its welfare system. Its welfare system is what made it an imperial cult. And its welfare system was extensive, even including, for a time, universal health care. And uh, free bread and circuses they talk about in Rome. That's their welfare. Free bread is their welfare. It wasn't just bread, it was cheese and even wine and food and money and all sorts of things that came from the government to help out the needy of society, which sometimes was half of the Roman population was on the government dole. Uh, it was a very complex society, and you didn't have an EBT card, but you had a tessera, which is a, a little clay coin, and with that you would show up when they gave away food, free food, which was almost every day. And... Uh, you would show up with that tessera and uh, you would get a share. And occasionally, that share would run out and there was no food and people rioted and people fought and people, you know, burning places down because there was no free bread today. The EBT card wasn't working. <laughs> you know, so the, the same problems that they had in Rome at, during the decline and fall of the Roman Empire is the same problems you're going to see during the decline and fall of the European Union, the decline and fall of the United States, the decline and fall of Canada. Because when Rome fell, many of the satellite countries that were all a part of that Pax Romana began to collapse. And, and we see that with the European Union starting to show uh, evidence of division and economic problems and, you know, another, the uh, influx of immigrants from foreign countries was a huge problem in Rome. It caused a great deal of riots. It, it filled slums. It created factions of violence. And uh, they wanted the free bread, too. 
And so all those elements that you see going on that contributed to the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, corruption in government, uh, too much power in the hands of government, foreign wars, the cost of foreign wars was devastating to the Roman economy. All these things has already happened on a different scale, you know, the Pax Romana scale. Now we're seeing it on a worldwide scale. And we're seeing it to a, you know, because of the tremendous efficiency of the the worldwide economy, you know, electronics and computer age and all this stuff, we've become so big, so massive. There's a Federal Reserve in almost every single country in the world. There was none in East Timor, and then it was invaded by Indonesian troops with American arms that were offloaded from American ships onto Indonesian ships, which immediately invaded East Timor. To take East Timor, which you think, why was anybody want East Timor? Most Americans don't even know where it is. I mean, I saw a guy on the Internet who's going around asking Americans on the beach. He says, uh, uh, do you know where Mount Rushmore is? Nobody knew where Mount Rushmore was. So he started asking and he says, did you... Do you think we should come to the defense of Mount Rushmore uh, now that the uh, Chinese or Koreans that can, are are taking it over and invading? Uh, you know, and since they didn't know it was in America, they were saying, no, I don't think we should be involved in foreign uh, <laughs> conflicts. You know, so they didn't know Mount Rushmore is in America. That's a mountain with all the presidents on it, for those of you who don't know. But he was finding all kinds of people who were completely ignorant of of this information. And they didn't know. They didn't know, you know, and he does this all the time. He's always going around interviewing people and asking what should be absolutely obvious questions that people don't know. They don't even have a clue. You know, you go down to a college campus and you ask, you know, who won the American Revolution? And people don't know. They don't know who fought. Who did we fight in the American Revolution? These are college students. They're not foreign college students. They're college students raised up in America, went to, you know, 12 years of public school, and they don't know who fought in the American Revolution. They know who Angelina Jolie is married to, but they don't know who we fought in the American... They don't know who won the Civil War. That, I mean, that's just astounding. And they're walking around and, you know, sucking in air and and getting student loans and... They don't know some of these the, the most basic information. So, when I come along and start to teach them the details of history and show them how history repeats itself and everything that happened in Rome is happening today, they haven't got a clue. When you start teaching them why Christians were being persecuted, most people think, oh, I'm a Christian because I believe in Jesus. And some of them are really good people. And some even may have miracles in their lives. And they think, oh, well, that proves that God exists and that Jesus loves me and all this stuff because I have miracles in my life. But they haven't put the whole thing together. This being a Christian is a process. I mean, it changes you. And the problem is, is that if you get to a certain point and God wants you to make an additional change in the direction of righteousness... A lot of people don't want to make it. That's why he also uses words like strive and persevere. You know, that you have to keep going to the end. You know, you can't stop seeking. And there are elements of Christianity most people who claim to be Christians have no knowledge of. 
many people who claim to be Christians want to have nothing to do with because they think their faith has saved them. They think when they hear Paul talking about us and we, that he's talking about them. In reality, what the people that Paul was talking to and saying us and we were doing something completely different than what the modern American or modern Christian in any country is doing. But it's interesting that a lot of these people that are out there talking about permaculture and and uh, self-reliance and everything, they have certain elements that early Christians also had. Uh, they're also missing certain elements of the early Christian society. And of course, when did those elements of the early Christian society go a-missing? When, when did they disappear from Christianity? When did Christianity stray from that path that the early church was following? Well, there have been numerous times in history where we strayed from that. And some by what we did. Some of the strain was because of what we did. Some of the strain was because of what we didn't do. That the early Christians did do. And so, studying that, studying that, the, the changes that took place in what we call Christianity is very important. Not only so that you can get back on the path of Christianity and follow the way of Christ, and really find out if you do believe or if you have need of repentance. But also because if you don't, you may not survive and thrive as we see history repeat itself with the decline and fall of the American Empire or the U.S. Empire or the United Nations Empire, whatever, you know, wherever you want to draw the line. The reality is the whole world and this is part of prophecy. The whole world has gone whoring after the ways of Nimrod and have abandoned, for the most part, the ways of Christ. And have done that while they say they are Christians. Which is just, if you're not doing what Christ said, yet you say you're a Christian, you use that name, Christ, that, that uh, title, Christ, referring to you being a follower of Christ. And you're not doing what Christ said and what the early church did, then what you're actually doing is taking the name of the Lord in vain. Claiming, in God I trust, but you're not actually trusting in the ways of God. So you have need of this repentance. So, what does that all look like? And so we're going to talk a little bit about, um, I have a whole list here of things that, you know, Jesus did not say, and we may go through that eventually, but when, uh, you know, like a story that my son sent out last night, uh, uh, court rules, uh, living off the grid is illegal. And of course, you can go to, uh, different websites that will, uh, you know, actually just look up ruling, uh, living off grid illegal. Just look up off grid. I mean, CNN actually, supposedly we're living off grid. We're not. I mean, I'm talking to you over a telephone. <laughs> doing this radio show and uh, we're using computers and electricity so we're in communication with you but if the grid were to suddenly go down what happens in my life what happens in your life 
uh, are we dependent upon that grid? And of course, the self-reliant people talk about being independent of the grid. They may still use it. They were all uh, using the Internet uh, to uh, express their ideas. They were doing it uh, in these interviews, which is all electronic. But yet, they may be becoming independent of the grid. And there's there's lots of stories and, uh, where people are independent of, you know, hooking up to government or, or corporate, uh, you know, water and sewage and and uh, electricity. And there have been rulings from judges that, no, you have to hook up to these things. You can't be self-reliant. We don't, we don't allow that. And, of course, we've heard stories recently of, you know, preppers, people trying to be self-reliant, grow their own food. Uh, that the FBI puts them on a list of being some sort of radical, maybe even subversive people because they want this independence. When we first came out here to the desert and we started learning some of these skills, you know, we were actually, you know, I was working as a carpenter for other people and and doing farm work for other people. But we also were learning these skills. We did it, or at least I did it, because of a fascination with, that was evidently in me way back when I was a cabinet builder in California and uh, Minnesota's that I would see them throwing wood away or I would see people throwing things in a dumpster that still had use. And I used to love to take stuff that people threw away and turn it into something of value. It was a challenge to me. It's like puzzle and I'm a puzzle solver. And that was a puzzle which you had no guarantee that you could solve the problem. <laughs> You know, supposedly when you buy a 5,000-piece puzzle in the store, you know, it they will all fit together. But in reality, you get pieces of a puzzle and they may not all fit together, the puzzle in in real life. So that to me, that was a challenge and I always wanted to do that. And that was, that's kind of my therapy. That, that That's something that I like to do is to, to learn how to do something that, you know, independently. And it wasn't anything to do with paranoia or overcome the, you know, tyranny or despotism. It's just in my nature to, you know, if I butchered a goat and we ate the goat, what do we do with the hide? Well, how do you turn it into leather? So that's a that's a puzzle. So we solve that. We figure out how to do it. And you, you tan, you know, a goat hide and you tan a sheep hide and then you tan a cow hide and, and then you get better and better at it usually time consuming and I've had to put all that stuff on on the side but we could teach people how to do that today uh, but we need more people what we've been doing is building this network and the network is not you know actually when CNN came out and were interviewing us because supposedly we're off the grid and uh, they were doing off the grid stories and uh, they were saying that uh, Brother Gregory uh was content to do things on the internet. Well, no. Uh, if I'm going to call you on the phone, I will call you on the phone. But if I want to communicate with you on the internet, I'll do that. But I also traveled all over the country uh, numerous times trying to preach this gospel of the kingdom, which was, in the early days, people gathering together in small congregations and those congregations linking together in a network so that when, you know, Barnabas and 
Paul sent aid to a particular city, they went to the ministers they knew because they knew them through the network. And those ministers made sure those people who had gathered together to help one another according to the ways of Christ, to love one another means to help one another, to serve church service was actually serving one another. They knew who to help because they were in a network where people had already come together to sacrifice, to give into this network of charity according to the perfect law of liberty, freely give. And that's what we see in the documents of trials and in the uh, documents like uh, the Apology of Justin, who eventually was martyred, where he says those who had shared with those that didn't have enough. And this is what they, they gather together. And those people who are willing to gather together and share were the ones that Barnabas and Paul brought relief supplies to. Why? Because they hoped that if there was a need somewhere else and these people were back on their feet, they would send relief supplies to other parts of the network. And they were bound together, these different parts, these different People in different countries were bound together through this network by faith, hope, and charity. Not because they took an oath that they have to come. You know, that was something that just happened in the last week or so that the Senate voted on a military spending bill and in it was a clause about all girls having to register for the draft. And they passed that that all girls will have to register for the draft. And if it passes in Congress, they passed it by a fairly large margin. So if it's passed in Congress, then that becomes law. The girls will have to register. And they say, oh, don't worry about it. We haven't used the draft in years. But we know that if there's an economic crisis, if there's any kind of a you know, military problem, that they will go back to the draft again. And I could go into that in great details. You know, the other laws that are changing on the books have already changed, been changing. That They will literally be able to walk up to anybody on the street and say, come with us. And you don't have any, whether you're registered or not, they will do that. And they will, they will, your labor will belong to them. And that already is the case. But they're just—you've been enfranchised. You've become subject citizens, and people are feeling that, and they talk about it. But if you mention that, they say, "No, no, I have inalienable rights, and you can't take my rights away." And they don't even understand how this all works. And you can tell when somebody doesn't understand how this all works when they start coming up with ideas, like uh, in 1871, the uh, the United States became a corporation and they subjected all the people to this new corporation and they go on with all these details. Anybody try to tell you that? They don't know what they're talking about. And the reason they don't know what they're talking about is manyfold, but we won't go into that. And the reason I mention that in part is because we just put up an article that explains why that's nonsense. Now, there were changes in 1871, and and the United States is a corporation. It's always been a corporation. Uh, Their quoting of Title 28, Section 15 uh, is misquoting because you have to see what that section is really about. And there's only really about 11 uh, U.S. corporations. 
and but there is a corporate nature to people's citizenship and their and power is centralized in government but it didn't happen because somebody passed a act in 1871 you know and this is this is the crooks of the problem all the way across the board and we're going to keep coming back to this the reason you you become human resources the reason you become international surety for debt, the reason you become merchandise, the reason your labor belongs to the government, whether you're in Canada or Australia or the United States or the Netherlands, is not because somebody passed some act or rule in Congress. It's because you've been indulging in covetous practices. And that brings us to one of the primary you know, we should make a list eventually. But the primary elements of the world that have changed is that it has become common in America to believe that it's okay to take from your neighbor to obtain benefits of society that you want. So you give power to government to take from your neighbor to provide you with welfare, to provide you with uh, schooling for your kids, which is welfare. You know, public school is welfare. It's, it's just, you know, we didn't always have public school. As a matter of fact, a hundred years ago in America, most kids were being educated. Well, you know, 106 years ago, most kids were being educated not in public schools. But even even a hundred years ago, most of the public schools that did exist which was pretty much a minority, were heavily supported by private donations. They weren't entirely supported by government. Well, it was government because you were the government of the people for the people and by the people. But now, it is the government of the United States and the state governments that support education. And they support education because they take money away from your neighbor and you. And that socialism, redistribution of wealth, and it's a system that relies on force. They force the contributions of the people, and then they force what you, your kids are going to learn. They're going to have to learn Common Core. You can fight against it, but they get paid to fight you. You don't get paid to fight them. And they get paid because they take from your neighbor. And they devise these plans, whether you like it or not, and you can you can complain, and you might slow it down, but it comes. It, you know, these are major changes that take place in education, but the major change, the crooks of the change, is the fact that you've decided that it's okay to force your neighbor to contribute to your child's education, to force a little old lady down here who lives in a shack to pay more than $800 a year in property tax. This is this is out in the wilderness. Uh, taxes aren't as much as they are in New Jersey, but $800 to her is a huge amount of money. And she has to pay that so that you can have free education. It's not free. It's free to you. It's not free to her. She has to pay into it. And of course, there's a lot of other people who pay a lot more. Some of them can afford it. Some of them can't. But they have to pay it anyway because you have decided that it's okay to force your neighbor to contribute to what you want. Christianity didn't do that. Real Christians don't do that. They do not force their neighbor to contribute. 
they operate by that, again, what Paul calls the perfect law of liberty. And if, if somebody needs help with their education, they voluntarily help them. And for the most part, they were home taught. Christians were home taught. And for the most part, today, Christians are still home taught. Now, a lot of modern Christians, they're not home taught. They go to public school. They are perfectly content to force their neighbor to contribute to their welfare. And they say, well, that's the system we have. And so we, we go along with the system. But they had a system in Rome. They had health care in Rome. They had all these free bread in Rome. Christians did not partake of it. And this is why they were tried. This is why they were persecuted. So, nobody had more self-reliance than Christians. By the very nature of the way of Christ, they became self-reliant. They didn't start looking for self-reliance, but they became self-reliant. So we're going to talk about that when we return to the keys of the kingdom and some of the ideas that these other people have about self-reliance and what is self-reliance. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. We're we're talking about self-reliance, intentional communities. And we were looking at uh, this Self-Reliance Summit for some ideas because these people are all finding it very interesting to be self-reliant. And they have a lot of different ideas. Uh, some of them are, are looking at history. Some of them are looking at nature. Some of them are looking at government. Some of them are... Because, and, 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 and they're doing this in an overlapping fashion because, you know, like even just to be concerned with... Uh, you know the presence of honeybees in society and in the in the world 
Honeybees are essential for the success of crops, and crops are essential for the success of people. And there are practices going on in society today that seem to be affecting the existence of bees and millions upon millions upon millions of bees have died in uh, where the hives you know stopped thriving they literally just died out so why why is this happening why are uh, these uh, different society uh, elements of society telling us is this like the the canary in the mine shaft people used to take canary down in the mine shafts and if the canary dropped dead because the canary was very sensitive if the the canary dropped dead um then um you knew that there was like poison gas in the mine that the maybe it was carbon dioxide was uh becoming too prevalent in the mine and uh you uh uh were uh, going to die yourself and you knew you had to get out of there because the canary would die before you did because it was more sensitive so these other elements in society or in nature such as bees if bees die out we die out i mean even albert einstein saw that because Bees are so essential for the success of crops because many crops rely on bees to pollinate them. And uh, and because of uh, changes in society concerning banking, money, you know, what we, we see posing as money, uh, it has become absolutely essential that if you produce a surplus, you need to sell that surplus right away because everybody's operating in debt. So they have to sell that surplus so that uh, they can pay their debt because the interest will go faster. I saw many ranchers uh, go out of business or go tremendously into debt during a period of time where suddenly they, they had made a habit of borrowing their operating expenses every year. At the beginning of the year, they'd get a line of credit, $60,000. And they, if they needed money, they would just borrow against that line of credit and the bank would start charging them interest. And then when they got to the point of selling their calves, they would pay off the loan. So every year they would have this operating expense loan. Well, all of a sudden, the interest rates jumped up to double digits. Well, the cows that they were raising wouldn't gain weight fast enough to pay a double digit uh, interest rate. And so they found themselves going farther into the hole. And there wasn't anything they could do about it because they had become addicted to borrowing their operating expenses. If they had simply tightened their belt for a year or two, they could have saved up what their operating expenses were, put that in the bank, and loaned themselves the money and saved that interest. But because of other changes in society, such as tax laws, it was to their advantage to borrow, you know, when they buy a truck. Instead of just buying the truck outright, it was to their advantage to borrow money to buy the truck because the interest that they paid to the bank was deductible. So there was this built-in thing into the economy by the changing of laws that led the people to go to the bank and borrow money. Or borrowing money to do things 
is a violation of the Sabbath commandments in the Bible. Now, most people don't make that connection. But it's very clear that in order to rest on the seventh day, you had to first work on the six days and then take your rest. When you were borrowing money, you're taking your rest. You're taking the the benefit of the next seven days of work <laughs> or seven years or maybe 70 years, depending on the size of the loan. You're borrowing against the future. You're, you're taking the profit today in the form of, of borrowing money and at interest against, you know, so you're taking that against what you will pay tomorrow, the labor that you will pour pay out tomorrow and that brings you into the bondage of debt that has become so pervasive in society by changes in society that we don't even we're not even consciously aware of it you know that while you have to borrow money to buy a home you could never pay for a home cash i mean it was just that's just impossible well it wasn't impossible 100 years ago people actually did it 100 years ago the idea of a three-year mortgage was just foreign to many people back in 1910, 1920. They got homes without paying for even three years. Then all of a sudden it went up to a five-year mortgage. Five years to pay off your house? That's amazing, people would say. But that's actually the progression of things. Then there was the you know 20-year mortgage. 10-year mortgage. I had a 10-year mortgage once. Um, you know, it was $160 a month. <laughs> it was $160.01, and it included the prorated property tax and insurance on a duplex in a nice neighborhood. <laughs> so, uh, three bedrooms. Uh, was it three bedrooms upstairs, two bedrooms down? Uh, and... You know, that's that's what it was. Uh, ten years, and that was, that was hard for me to even accept that idea. We only had that loan for six months, and then we got out of debt, and have never been in debt since. But uh, today, for the average American, they can't imagine not having a 20-year or 30-year mortgage. And then now they have uh, mortgages that you don't even pay off the principal. They're lifetime mortgages. You will always pay the mortgage. Forever and ever and ever, you will pay the mortgage. <laughs> and they sign these things. It's just amazing. So, But the fact that they get to the point where they do that has been a process of change in your thinking. By changing certain elements of society. By changing certain criteria of society. Certain moral criteria of society. You say suddenly, that's okay. You know, at one time it was not okay, and I have given the example of the definition of uh, uh, democracy in the military manual in 1927. Democracy was a bad thing; it was it was an evil form of government. It was in the U.S. military manual explained that democracy was a bad thing, but by 1945, democracy became a good thing. I don't know that anybody voted and said, well, from now on we're going to say democracy is a good thing. They just introduced a change in society. During war, it's always easier to do because people are preoccupied with the war. 
And they began to teach in the schools that democracy was a good thing. It was a good form of government. Never mind the fact that the early so-called forefathers of America often preached against democracy as a bad form of government, a dangerous form of government, a self-destructive form of government. But now, if I tell you that today, you're going to think, well, that's crazy because that goes against what I've been taught. So I had to write a whole book explaining and showing people that this is the way people thought of democracy at this time and this is the way the people thought of democracy today. And something changed. We were taught something different. Then you can go back in history and find out what happened to democracies. Because they all failed. And that was common knowledge for people who studied history a hundred years ago. But if you study history today in American schools, you won't learn that. Because they've changed the way you think. And of course, repentance is to change the way you think. is to go think another way. It's a turning around of your mind and thinking another way. Democracies lend themselves to the idea that it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods. To vote in benefits for yourself at the expense of your neighbor. And there are people who are actually seeking self-reliance while at the same time trying to vote in a socialist agenda in their government. Even, you know, for their their welfare. You know, because they know we should take care of the elderly and the weak and the poor and all this stuff. And somehow or other, they think that's the government's job. Every job you assign to the government, it must be a job that you had originally and now have decided that the government should be responsible for that job. And when you did that, you abandon a responsibility. And when you abandon a responsibility, you abandon a right because rights and responsibilities are co-relative. They they go hand in hand. You cannot deny one without denying the other. So in self-reliance, to really be self-reliant, one must take back their responsibilities. And that's what you see in these different groups where they're or individuals, they're actually not really that many groups, although some of them have like you know, like 25,000 followers in their blog, which is a huge number of people. And, of course, they're getting, you know, an email, newsletter, and a blog. They may read it. They may not read it. They may never, ever read it. And they, they may not even exist anymore. They're, they had an email, and they've lost the email. <laughs> so, it, these... And these 25,000 people, they're not necessarily putting anything in. They're getting this free newsletter. You just sign up for it. But their information is going out, and they're talking about uh, lots of different things. And and I've made a note on some of them. Like I say, they talk about the permaculture revolution. Uh, they talk about, uh, like Lori Neverman talks about, uh, backyard to desert to degraded Midwestern farmlands, permaculture is revolutionizing food production. Learn how you can develop a healthy, productive ecosystem that heals the soil while producing a diversity of foods. And, you know, they have a, she has a common sense uh, home.com website and she talks about everything from 
you know, homesteading to preparedness, etc. Uh, there's other people that they interviewed, but uh, one of the words that I looked at, you know, that I always find interesting to look at the origin of words, you, you talk about ecosystem or ecology. What Where is that ecology? Where, where does that come from? Uh, obviously, logi has to do with studying uh, logos, word, ology, whenever you see ology on there, it's some, some, some sort of study. It's the words about a particular thing, and the thing that it's about is the first syllable. And in this case, it's echo, which actually comes from okimonos, which is the word in Greek for house. So, ecology is the study of your house? <laughs> well, it's the study of where you live. Uh, okinomos uh, is, you know, where you live is this whole environment around you, which may be in the house if you're in the house. It may be out in the yard if you're out in the yard, I guess. But it's the interaction of all these things. Just like your roof exists because your walls are there. Your roof is dependent upon your walls supporting it. And it's the same way if you're going to have a garden, the dirt is is part of that support of your garden. So, what about the ecology of society? You know, we talk about the ecology of nature, but society is within nature. It exists within nature. And, of course, our topic is, is not just permaculture, but perma-community. It's the perma-community, which is us, a part of that oikonomos, that house, that ecology, and what part we play in it. And like I was saying, that some of the the people like uh, Dr. Uh, Kusin, you know, who talks about it, Dr. Kusin in the Tree of Life and all this kind of stuff, and he talks about uh, the planet that we're one with the planet. He talks about the seen teachings. We talk about the seen teachings. Uh, he also talks about uh, Native Americans uh, as if they understood these things and all this stuff. And and like I was saying in an earlier show, the Europeans at one time understood the importance of nature and cooperation with nature. One of the things that the Romans at the time of the rise of the Roman Empire, when they went to Great Britain and saw how the the Brits were farming. They made a huge study of it because they said these people know about nature. They know about companion planting. They know about um, you know how to grow crops, how to preserve food, how to preserve grain, and they they have lots of skills. The Romans actually used to have, but lost as they became this citified society where they the, the the cessation of growing of grain in Italy was a, a real problem because they didn't need to grow grain in Italy because they they had so much trade between uh, Rome and Egypt and they had these huge giant ships that would go and fill up with thousands of thousands and thousands of bushels of grain and bring them to you know, either as tribute or in payment for other things that the Romans did because the Romans had this huge amount of money that was coming in that these other... And and then they would go out and invest in places like Egypt, building 
harbors and roads and everything, and then Egypt would owe them money back, and they would pay off their national debt with grain. And so they had this huge amount of grain coming in, which kept the price of grain down, which all the people applauded, but it ran the grain farmers out of business. And we see the same thing going on in America with businesses going overseas and businesses in America can't compete. And we say, why can't we compete? Well, the major reason is the banking system. And we've been operating on our laurels. So we've created this entirely interdependent economy where you're dependent upon, you know, uh, foreign sources of all kinds of things. You know, we don't even make a shirt hardly in America. You know, we don't weave cloth in America. Most of the looms are all out of business. Uh, our shoes are being made overseas. We don't make these things at home. And that that's going to be a problem someday if we can't get them from abroad. You know, it takes a million dollar factory to make a shirt, make a pair of pants, to weave the cloth. We don't know how to do that. But that total dependence of society upon other people manufacturing things that you need, people, for some strange reason, wake up in the morning and want to be less dependent upon that system, which, you know, they put names on it like the Matrix, etc., etc. So how do we do that? How do we get independent of that? And, of course, these different people like... Uh, Marion Henning, who talks about the bees, and Brad DeRosia, uh, who talks about family, homestead, and some of the things that he's learned. Marjorie Wildcrive, Paul Wheaton, uh, who is, you know, really coined the word, I guess, permaculture. I believe that was Paul who did that. And some of these other people, uh, Mike Adams, who's big into health and also now big into growing food, and these little, uh, uh, closed ecologies actually within your home almost so that you grow it all that you need that way and you get better food because he's, he's saying the food that you're buying in the store have less nutrition than the food that the poor people ate a hundred years ago. And of course we do have, you know, all sorts of chronic diseases showing up left and right all over society. Uh, immune diseases. Autoimmune diseases destroying the health of society. If you if you look back and you're kind of a health forensic nut where you're measuring the amount of sicknesses and illnesses and disease that we have more sick people today than we had before. And the real guys who should receive the award for improving the health of society is not doctors. But plumbers, plumbers did more to improving the health of society by removing the waste of society in in a healthy way so that we weren't contaminating ourselves with our own excrement. <laughs> because that was, that's where you got parasites and everything. That's all coming back now. Even with the great plumbing, we're now bringing back a lot of the problems and we don't see it. Some people are seeing it. And they're trying to do something about it. Growing their own food. Becoming that self-reliant. But ultimately, it's not just permaculture, you and your house. If you're going to look at nature, you got to look at all of nature. The seasons, the altitudes, the temperatures, the moisture, the 
you know, if you're going to grow a garden, the fertility of the soil, the soil is alive with thousands of different kinds of bacteria interacting. And if that health of the soil is not there, the health of your plant will not be there because they're all interconnected. That's what you learn from permaculture. But permaculture doesn't, even though it's a coin phrase referring to your garden and, and farming methods, the fact is culture, you are a part of a culture. In your culture today, it's, it's, it's okay to take from your neighbor so you can have free education or free health care or free this, that, and the other thing. That's become a part of the American culture. It didn't used to be a part of the American culture. And so, the American culture, which when they were self-sustaining, they took care of one another, They everybody was better educated, they knew more about the world, they all knew how to read and write, they had extensive resources, and now we could have even more with all the things that we've invented. But the reality is that people don't even know where Mount Rushmore is, they don't know who won the Civil War, they don't. They don't know all kinds of things. They don't know where their food comes. They they actually think GMOs are good. That GMOs are a good thing because they heard that somewhere. Somebody told them that. You know, they read it on the internet. But the reality is, is it's one of the most dangerous things that has come along in this last century. And it will lead eventually to the death and starvation of millions upon millions of people. And And there's a number of reasons why. Not just because GMOs are around but because of elements of society have completely disappeared. Elements of the farming community have completely disappeared because of the introduction of GMOs, which you, which actually involves pickups and trailers. <laughs> A whole industry that thrived in the Midwest. Hundreds and hundreds of people depended upon that for their livelihood. It was seed cleaning. Seed cleaners were everywhere. Throughout the Midwest, they would, everything from big semis to little pickups, they would go around. And, of course, there were stationary ones. Now, we have one out in Christmas Valley. They clean seeds, uh, certain seeds. And uh, it's a whole industry. Except for now, it's almost, the traveling seed cleaners are almost gone. Many of the stationary seed cleaners are gone. They don't do it anymore. Why? Because... They've been run out of business by Monsanto. Uh, you would think that has nothing to do with what I put in my mouth or anything. They get seeds from somewhere else, but the private seed cleaners are all out of business. Well, how would that affect me, you think? Well, see, that's one of the things. In, in the kingdom of God, you have to care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. And because nobody cared that these guys were running out of business, it was very easy to run them out of business just by bringing court cases against them that they may might have cleaned some GMO seeds which guys had patents on. And if you did that, you committed a crime. And so they were run out of business because they couldn't handle the lawsuits. Well, what does that mean to you? Well, it means the, the Ukrainian famine that took place after World War II and in you know, through actually through this whole process of uh, the takeover. No, it wasn't just after World War Two, but the the whole process of uh, the rise of the Soviet Union and Stalin and took place because the seed grain 
disappeared from the farmers. The major farmers that supplied the breadbasket of Russia didn't have seed grain. They couldn't. They didn't have anything to plant. It was gone. They had no way to get seed to plant, and so they didn't plant, and they starved. And 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 mothers decided which of their children would live and which children would die, and and gave up their own life. You know, uh, people were just emaciated with starvation because there was no seeds to plant. You live in the city, you say, well, I'll just go to the store and get food. But they don't see the process. They don't see how things are connected. Well, if there's not seeds to plant in the Midwest of the United States, America will starve by the millions. And Europe sees this. They understand this. But Americans aren't seeing this. And this is, this is, this is tragic. And because you don't hear it on the six o'clock news, you think it's not the case. But, now we have these people going out and trying to create this, you know, this sustainable agriculture, permaculture, self-reliance. But they need a self-reliance in a bigger way. And that's what we're going to talk when we get back. Okay, welcome back. So, how do you become self-reliant? Well, you you can't. Uh, I've homesteaded. I've you know grown our own food. I, I've done all that stuff uh, for years. And uh, the fact is, you often need other people. You need a community. Uh, every, I mean, sure you can find somebody who's going to go up in the wilderness and he's going to survive up there and he's going to hunt bear and eat that and all that stuff. And such individuals exist, but they don't usually exist as families. You know, you, even the Swiss family of Robinson, when they were Caruso'd on the island in the, the, the novel of the Robinson family, uh, they eventually had to have other people come in. Uh, the, the boys had to marry somebody <laughs> in order to produce the next generation. And that... Societies are born in the family. So families uh, don't continue to recreate themselves. They need other families interacting uh, with them. Uh, and so that's community. And the fact is you can't produce everything you need all the time. Occasionally you will need other help. And then there's the great danger of the fact that other marauding bands may come around and put an end to you. So you want allies, other people to be there. And of course we see with people like Abraham, he had all kinds of allies who joined him in defeating these kings who came in and defeated Sodom and Gomorrah and other city-states. And where did they come from and why did they appear? And most people have no idea how that works. So when people talk about their uh, perma-community or their uh, uh, you know communities that continue and... Uh, they talk about the individual being at peace with the community, not at war with the community, not at odds with the community, being at peace with the nature, 
that Kusan talks about peace with animals. You become a vegetarian. You don't need to become a vegetarian to reap the health of a vegetarian diet. Uh, you know, I was just talking to somebody last night and, and pointing out if people actually studied the history of things in detail so that they actually know that the pieces fit together. You know, like I was mentioning in, earlier in the show, the 18... Uh, 71 act that they said incorporated the United States. Well, when you read their scenario of things, it sounds logical what they're doing. But if you are missing pieces of the puzzle, you will be fooled by their rationale. But the, the main reason you're fooled by their rationale about the United States becoming a corporation suddenly in 1871 because Congress decided to make it so... The reason it it succeeds is not because it is a rational argument, because you can show that it's not a rational argument uh, if you get more facts. But the reason it succeeds is because people want to blame somebody else. They want to think it's somebody else's fault. Well, the same characteristic in you that wants to think that it's somebody else's fault, it's not my fault, also holds up other people as saints and say that these are our saints. These are our good people. These are our heroes. And of course, that's what Jesus is to people. He's a, he's a hero and they hold up Jesus. But they're not holding up the whole Jesus. They only hold up part of it. And, and I see the same thing with people who hold up the Native American. They say, well, the Native American were in harmony with nature. Well, to some degree, their culture was in harmony with nature. Every farmer, to some degree, is in harmony with nature, and to some degree, he's not. And the fact is, is that uh, before the five nations came together with the, you know, the great pine tree of peace concept, all written out in wampum, uh, that united five major tribes and eventually seven major tribes, and swallowed up many other minor tribes, They had a problem with cannibalism in America. They had a problem with the shortage of game in America. We always think, you know, uh, America was thriving with this game everywhere. Food everywhere. You can just go hunting and fishing all the time. Well, the fact is there were so many people on the coastline. You know, the the early... um, Ships that came over here that sailed down the coastline said that they couldn't find an inlet that the hail of arrows didn't come at the ship when they they came into these inlets because there were fires all along the coast for miles and miles and miles and miles. They would see campfires because there were so many Indians. They were everywhere. So many of the inhabitants. They were everywhere. Yeah, and they were hunter-gatherers. Well, because there were so many that hunting and gathering became competitive. And there were wars over territory. Oh, nobody can own the land, supposedly all the Indians know. But the reality is, is that they were very territorial. They were constantly having wars between themselves. Even when the, their numbers were decreased by disease, they were still worried extremely about... Uh, the uh, uh, 
other larger tribes taking them over. And we see even Lewis and Clark traveling across when they came upon the, I believe it was the, was it the Cheyenne or, uh, I can't remember which tribe it was. They had been decimated by raids from the Blackfoot. That was a real problem. They were constantly attacking one another. There were some whole tribes that they made their entire living by robbing other tribes. They didn't produce very much themselves. They mostly stole from other tribes. <laughs> and, and, of course, they did do hunting and fishing as well, but they uh, they were notorious thieves, some tribes. And the fact is you would find good people, you know, you'd find good pindereels and bad traitorous pindereels and and nespers. You'd find good and you'd find bad and all the different, just the same as you'd find in Europeans. That, you know, to even say the Indians understood is a racist statement. To say that Indians understood and other races did not understand is crazy. It's a terribly racist statement. Some Indians understood. Some Indians were not only in harmony with nature, but they were in harmony with righteousness. And some were not. Some were uh, evil. Some were murderous. Some were treacherous. Uh, same as you found amongst Europeans. I don't believe that there was any... The, the truth is, is... Manifest destiny, which supposedly is what wiped out the Indians, which is a, supposedly an idea of the Europeans that came over here. Manifest destiny. Wherever we go, we will dominate that area. The reality is, is that was a, a major part of the interpretation of the uh, Pine Tree of Peace, the Constitution of the Iroquois, whatever you want to call it is that when a nation would not sit down with their their way of bringing the nations together, that you had the right to swallow up that nation, suppress that nation, oppress that nation, subjugate that nation, and give it no seat at the council. Uh, that's Now, that may not have been the original intent of the uh, individuals who put together the uh, this constitution, but it was certainly the interpretation by many of the tribes, especially the bigger tribes. And the tribes that uh, allied themselves with the uh, pilgrims, uh, and that's a big, long story, but the ones that did, did so because they feared bigger tribes conquering them, and they wanted the pilgrims as their allies. The pilgrims did have things like cannons, and they did have these big ships and they did have trade goods. And so they wanted to ally themselves with them because they feared being overrun by Native Americans, other Native Americans who would conquer them, steal their women, kill them, take over their territory. So where's the harmony in that? The reality is we have to be careful about ennobilizing whole races or groups of people. They, they had their good, they had their bad. The same as should we all be vegetarians and that that would make us at peace with animals? A shepherd has a symbiotic relationship with his flock. You know, I was actually, we were just shearing the sheep recently. If you don't shear the sheep, they die. You have to shear the sheep. It's not like shearing your flock uh, in church. The, this, you, you, and that's the big story is that you supposedly 
put your hand on the sheep and they just lay there and let you shear them. There's lots of people who do sermons with that idea. And that's true. I told somebody who brought that up and I said, well, that's sort of true. This is some of the sheep, you have to lay your hand on them a little harder than with others. One of the most domesticated sheep in the whole flock who come up to you and will actually want you to pet them. Most of the sheep don't do that. But this sheep will actually walk out of the herd and come up to you. I don't know if it was a bummer for part of the time or what when I was younger. But when it came through the chute and the shearer started to shear it, it fought the worst. I mean, it, it actually was kicking and making a real commotion. And I says, that's amazing. That's the tamest sheep in the flock. And, it says that, and they said, that's always the way it is. The tamest sheep in the flock, the most domesticated sheep, is the one that fights us. When we shear them. But anyway, the point is, is that we, we talked about political pundits like Bernie Sanders and I says, well, Bernie has the same policy with, uh, with people as I have with my flock. Is that, uh, I provide them with free hay and free graze and free water and, and all these free things and then I eat their young. <laughs> Which is, which is really, they all got a chuckle out of that, because, uh, and we don't just eat their young, but we are raising, we sell off some of the flock to feed other people, feed our neighbors, feed other people around the country. Uh, we shear them and turn the wool into clothing, but we keep the life of the whole herd because the herd moves as one, and without us, without the shepherd. The sheep would die. They have to be sheared or they will die in a few years. Because the wool will grow too great. They have to be protected from coyotes. They have to, you have to put up hay for them to survive through the winter. And if you provide the best hay for them when they're lambing, then their lambs will do better. We pour out our lives to, so that those sheep will survive. And what do those sheep do? They go out on the desert and turn grasses that would turn gray and wolfy and just die and disintegrate and actually stop growing because they become bunch grass. They get too thick. They never get grazed off. That's bad for grass. Grass is designed to be grazed off. So we take that grass that gets grazed from time to time and we turn it into nutrition. We turn it into wool for clothing. And we pour out our life to sustain the flock and the flock pours out some of its life to sustain us. That's a symbiotic relationship. That's nature. Eating meat is okay. You shouldn't eat meat every day, 365 days out of the year. Your body isn't designed to do that for the most part. should be periods of time where you fast from meat because there are enzymes in the body, part of your immune system, that actually will destroy cancers, but it also is used to digest meat when the meat enters into your bloodstream. It's it's part of that system. So if you eat meat every day, they never get a chance. Those same enzymes won't get a chance to go and fight cancers in your body that develop. So, yeah, if you eat meat every day, we saw a rise in cancer as soon as the American population started doing that. Because And they started doing it because the introduction of refrigeration and the improvement in the economy, seemingly improvement in the economy by the existence of ready cash, which was 
to the Federal Reserve. So it stimulated the economy. People were able to eat meat every day. Refrigeration and transportation of meat. All this stuff led to a change in our diet, which brought about more cancer. And so these are elements of society that make society unhealthy. There are millions of these elements. But one, and you can't even probably memorize them all. But when you start understanding certain basic principles that Christ taught, that Moses taught, that Abraham taught, then all these things start falling into place. And like this Kusin who just talks about this, you know, he talks about the Native American and being in harmony. What is that harmony? You know, or, or being at peace with animals, being at peace with the plants, being at peace with the culture, being at peace with the ecology. And again, what is ecology? Eco from Okomene, house, ology, study, the study of the house. We live in the world. That's the house we live in. Are we at peace with that house? We were to live in the world, but not of the world. We would, you know, supposed to be running with stranger to make peace with them. Christ is talking about this. But how do we apply that to everyday life? Are we in harmony? Are, are we in, in harmony with each other? What we really want to be in harmony with is righteousness. And what is righteousness? We have to care about our neighbor as much as we care about ourselves. That's what brings you in peace. You know, into a state of peace with the world around you. Forgiveness is the end of conflict. If you, if, if forgiving becomes a part of your nature, then you will be at peace with the world around you. With the people around you. With the cultures around you. And that that forgiveness is important in seeking the harmony with righteousness. Because you, you're not judged. Somebody else is judged. So how does this play out in everyday communities? How, how does this play out? And of course, we take you back to the design that Christ was giving. Christ was telling the people to love one another as I have loved you. How did he love us? He sacrificed himself. He gave up his time, his energy, his wealth. It, it says, though he was rich, he made himself poor. Common misunderstanding. Jesus was actually from one of the richest families in Judea. He wasn't a poor carpenter. People made that up. The, the, the Bible says he was a carpenter. He probably was, it, Joseph was a carpenter. He probably wasn't even a carpenter. Actually, what he's saying is that he was a builder. And in those days, they did build out of wood, but mostly they built out of stone. So he was probably a stonemason, especially if he went to uh, Egypt, because they built with stone. And we know that relatives of Jesus were extremely wealthy. And in those days, families shared their wealth with their family. If they you wanted a loan, you went to somebody in your family, you didn't go to a bank. But it says that though he was rich, he made himself poor. He gave up his wealth to become this preacher of this other way of existing. What Jesus was doing was creating an intentional community. A community that would continue, would not die. This worm will not die. 
We can kill it if we stray from the formula that Christ gave us. And what was part of that formula? When they said, what must we do to obtain eternal life? In other words, what must we do to have a perma-community? A permanent community. Because they're not just talking about themselves. They're talking about their people. What must they do? He says, thou knowest the commandments, keep them. So these commandments, these Ten Commandments, were a secret to a perma-intentional community. You couldn't be stealing from one another. You couldn't be uh, bearing false witness to one another. You couldn't be uh, coveting one another's goods. That was an essential element. Now, if you take... One of the commandments and break them as a matter of policy. You break all the commandments as a matter of policy. So if you suddenly accept in your mind, in your church, that it's okay to apply to men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority to obtain benefits at the expense of your neighbor. If you think that's okay, you have denied Christ. You have denied the way of Christ. The perfect law of liberty doesn't exist for you anymore. Your perfect law is take from my neighbor so that I can have more. So, you know, how do we remedy that? How do we change that? We have to change our thinking. We have to realize that it's not... Somebody just talked on the internet about the fact that they, their, their grandchild had a $200,000 debt, a medical debt, because they had to have this operation. Uh... We had somebody who was injured on the on uh, the network. I I don't know how much all the bills came to. I know they probably came to well over a hundred thousand dollars. If you added them all up at face value, I'm sure they were over a hundred thousand dollars. Probably closer to two hundred thousand dollars than to a hundred thousand. I don't know. I, I we have people who would know, but I don't. I just don't know my own mind. But I know it was high. I also know that. through the church and through some of the things that we share with people and show them how these things work, they were able to negotiate those bills down to a fraction of what they were. And because they were a part of a congregation of record, at least some members of the congregation of record, even though it's not a very big congregation, it's a tiny, tiny little congregation, even by our standards, they were able to pay thousands and thousands of dollars in those medical bills for them. And these people, the interesting thing is those people whose bills that were getting paid, uh, they were working hard people. Of course, they had this this injury that required this medical expense. So that hampered their ability to work. But then people actually showed up to help them maintain their business. They could actually be completely on government dole. They qualify for being completely on government dole, not even for this injury, but for previous difficulties. They reject the government dole. They refuse to take the money from the government because they know, deep down, they know that if you take money from the government, you're actually taking from your neighbor. They, and they don't want to covet their neighbor's goods. Now, a lot of people want them to do that, but they're not doing that. Instead, they're trying to pay the bill off themselves. Then, of course, they go and negotiate the bill and it's reduced. And the church calls up and the church is going to pay a bill that's, you know, over $1,000. And they said, well, no, just pay 90 Wow. 
you know, they saved 900, actually saved over $1,000 on that bill. On that one bill alone. Because the church, which is not me, but the congregations, I mean, I don't have the money. In me personally, I, I mean, I, I've, I've offered to help out in many ways, and we have helped out, and with different people throughout the network. But the reality is the congregation is seeing that these bills are getting paid. And they have a payment plan. And if they had real, you know, 10 family congregation who was giving like Christ said to give. And that congregation was linked with another 10 congregations or another 9 congregations. And they were all giving. We could have gone in and negotiated that bill down to a fraction overnight to say, hey, we've got, you know, you got a $200,000 bill. We'll pay it right now for how much. You, you'd be surprised how much they would take. Maybe $30,000, maybe less if you pay it cash right up front. But besides that, the fact is, is there are alternatives to many of the expensive cures offered by modern medicine you know in the in the series uh the truth about cancer there there are many many people that are finding things that cure them complete remission without the chemo without all the side effects and good health besides amazing stories but anyway we'll have to continue this next time on keys of the kingdom until then peace on your house And may God be with you. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.